0: hello and welcome to another episode of envisioneering exchange the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in sustainability climate change buildings and urban efficiency i'm vic marinich global marketing director for danfoss and i'm delighted to be the host of this podcast you can subscribe to our show on apple podcasts spotify soundcloud or wherever you get your podcasts today we have Paul Selking from Water Furnace on the show to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and its implications on the commercial geothermal space. Paul is the Vice President of Commercial Sales and Marketing for Water Furnace, which manufactures and distributes geothermal and water source heating and cooling systems for residential and commercial buildings. Paul, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Vic. So maybe let's kind of talk a little bit about you here first. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about your background and how you got moved into the commercial geothermal space?
1: Yeah, I would love to. And uh, we really appreciate being on the Danfoss podcast. Uh, I can tell you, your team's doing a great job with these. I love some HVAC-centered podcasts. Uh, There's not a lot of them out there. So a little background on me. It a little bit parallels Danfoss from the perspective my first 28 years were in the HVAC component business started with the GE, with their ECM blower motors. And then more recently here, the last three and a half years, I've been at Water Furnace and, you know, we take all of those components from manufacturers like yourself and my former employers and put them together, right? We make solutions that uh, kind of, we believe, bring heating and cooling to the world. And we use a couple of really common mediums for that. The good old ground, and plain old water, and I'll obviously get a chance to share more of that throughout the podcast.
0: Great. So yeah, and maybe let's start there, right? Because today we're talking commercial geothermal heating and cooling systems, and specifically how they uh, may be impacted by some tax incentives from the Inflation Reduction Act. But let's start with the real basics here. And can you describe a geothermal system, and how does it work, and how it's different from what most people probably, you know, have whatever in their home or see in their office space?
1: Yeah, it's pretty easy, really. At the end of the day, you know, I don't know if you're like me, if you've ever walked outside, Vic, and you got bare feet, right, and you walk out on the concrete, it's kind of nighttime, but it's been a nice, warm, sunny day, right? Well, the concrete feels warm still, even though, you know, maybe it's 50 degrees out air temperature at this time. So, you know, the ground, it's a great big heat sink. And uh, we view it as a heat sink or renewable energy. And, uh, Matter of fact, right, kind of to transfer that energy, we just say, okay, let's run water through standard everyday pipe and transfer the energy right between the building and the ground by using that water as a great mechanism to transfer that energy. So just kind of basic thermodynamics, ponds and lakes are also a really excellent resource for us as, uh, you know, I don't know if you're an ice fisherman or not, Vic, but you know, after you go down just a little bit, right, it's back to water and you go a few feet deep in a pond and the temperature's stable there, just like the ground is stable a few feet down underneath the top. And it just stays at that same temperature. And we use that to heat and cool then year round that very stable either water or ground temperature, either one. So it's a pretty straightforward concept of uh, kind of basic thermodynamics uh, back in sixth, seventh grade. It was just called physics at that time, right? So you got into engineering school, then they added the fancier names to it. But so that's kind of how we start.
0: It sounds like we have a different heat sink maybe than what we're used to having in a heat pump or a chiller. Are there any other differences in the system itself between a geothermal system and a heat pump?
1: Yeah, you kind of touched on that a little bit there because the term heat pump... The good news is, in the world we're in, the the term is becoming very uh, recognized, right? It was not as recognized uh, in the very near past. Now it's very recognized. And usually when the term is used, you're speaking of an air source heat pump. And that exclusively uses the air as that sink, as uh, you were just talking about. So those are great products. And they definitely are part of the electrification and decarb uh, challenge that we're all faced with. However, they're not nearly as efficient. And the, the way that I would describe that to you, Vic, is to think of an ice cold cooler with, I'll call it your favorite beverage in it, and it's got a nice water bath uh, in it. And you have to dig down into the bottom, right, through all the stuff that nobody else wants to drink to the ones that you like. So your hand's in there for 10 seconds in that cold water bath, but it's crazy cold, right, even though it's just 10 seconds. And You pull your hand out, but the water was just 33 degrees, right? It it wasn't freezing because it wasn't ice. Um, It was still liquid. Take that same arm, put it outside when it's just a 33 degree day out for 10 seconds. Sure, it feels cool, but your arm doesn't get frozen. It doesn't feel like it does, right? In that 10 seconds, like the water. And so, you know, that's kind of the way to think about how, how much more efficient and how much energy that water can transfer versus air. Mm-hmm. So that's a way to think of the efficiency of geothermal over an air source heat pump. They're both heat pumps. Just one uses air and the other uses water. So, you know, you want to geek out a little bit, Vic, the way that- That's what we're you know, here for. Of,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, the way that a lot of people like to talk is, you know, EER, right? Energy yep. efficiency ratio. So the difference there. You're going to find, you know, one to two X more efficiency in a water source or ground source heat pump. And if you want to talk on the heating side, right, people, um, COP are very popular now because we need to solve the heating challenge with decarb. So coefficient of performance for heating performance side, geothermal, you're going to get in a four to five and a half COP. And for maybe those listeners aren't as familiar with that, an electric strip heat is just a COP of one, 1.0, it's kind of the baseline. In an air source, you're going to be in like a two and a half range. Mm-hmm. So we're even more than double that. And that's really a great piece, right? It's, it's a we believe, the lowest operating cost solution, and it's a renewable energy source, right? You're using right. the earth. So those are some great items that really feed into uh, why we do what we do and uh, why we participate in this space.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed it there, Paul, that heat pumps are becoming almost we won't quite call it an everyday term yet, but they really are gaining in popularity, right? It's not just at things like the HR show or whatever, a bunch of geeks here talking about them, but you see it on the nightly news that heat pumps are coming and electrification of heat and those kinds of things. So it really is becoming more and more mainstream. And geothermal then, right, is playing a big part there, as you mentioned, uh, a lot more efficient than a typical air side. But is geothermal a good choice? for everybody and anybody or who's going to get the most benefits by looking at a geothermal system and when would you really want to make sure that uh, you're evaluating one?
1: Yeah, they are very adaptable. So that is one of the benefits uh, relevant to who are they a good choice for. This business here that I get to participate with was founded and grew its brand on the benefits for residential homes. So that was kind of the choice and where they were applied in the company's history here. And I personally have had one in my house for 23 years now. So, right, it's a great solution for residential uh, facilities. But to look more commercially, they're really good when you've got differentiated loads in a building. And think of like an educational building, Vic, where you have a set amount of occupants, so many students, let's say, for the most part in the day, but they're moving around, right? One hour, they're in the lunchroom. Then there's a bunch of them in the gym, However, the office area has always got people in it. It's more consistent, but yet to the whole load. So geothermal heat pumps, we move the hot and the cold water within the building to the right space conditioning requirements. And it's not just that, but in many cases, we don't even have to use the ground loop or the pond because we've got heating in one space, cold in the other. Well, the byproduct of a geothermal water source heat pump when you're heating is cold water, right? So then I can direct that cold water to where I need it for cooling. And the byproduct of the cooling side of the heat pump is warm water. So we'll talk about that as a net energy loop a lot of times within a building. The other thing that we see to your question of who's it a choice for, who should be looking at it, post-COVID, the office building utilization has changed. people... Come in at varied hours. You know, I know some companies. You know, you work three days a week in the office, two days from home. So similarly to the example with the education I gave, water source heat pumps, right? there are great for that because you can have a very large variation in space conditioning. And we like to use variable speed compressors, which are right up the alley of Danfoss, along with electronic expansion valves, because now I can take that unit and I can. Operated at about 25% of the total capacity based on the load of my building. And the real benefit there is that now I'm not fast cycling. And so I'm maintaining a very steady uh, operating window of the refrigeration circuit and it's giving excellent comfort. So it's not that, oh gosh, I can't wait till the thermostat kicks on and it cycles real quick because it's way oversized. So sometimes people, I think, don't think that this industry has the technology applied, but it absolutely does have all of the latest technologies applied to it to provide the best thermal comfort also for the occupants.
0: That's a really uh, interesting, important point that you brought up there, Paul, about the ability to do heating and cooling at the same time, right, and and shifting the load around the buildings and taking advantage of the excess heat or excess cooling, right, Uh, because we know Not everybody wants the building at the same temperature at the same time, depending where the people are. So, yeah, I think really important point there. So that's kind of on the uh, inside of the building. Maybe if we look uh, on the outside for geothermal, when should building owners consider looking at a geothermal system? Is it only really for new construction? Is it something that can be done retrofit or does it depend or how should we look at it uh, in that regard?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Vic. I think the way to think about it is to look from a lifecycle cost perspective. It's so intriguing to me right now. And I know some of your past podcasts have touched on some great sustainability topics. So you hear companies talk about their commitment to ESG and sustainability, and then you drive past the building and you see the roof is littered with eight to ten SEER rooftop package units that you know are the most inefficient, but If you're going to go geothermal, clearly new construction becomes a much easier upfront installation because you don't have to work around the existing building infrastructure. However, you can still get a very nice upgrade in efficiency by retrofitting uh, existing uh, units to water source heat pumps and chillers. A great example is in Maryland, the Towson Courthouse. Uh, there, we had one of our rep partners that helped that building designer decarb that building by simply using heat recovery chiller. So, what they're doing there is just trying to provide as much heating that is required by using some of the byproducts of the other units in their building that are already operating. And otherwise we're just exhausting either to the atmosphere or putting the energy back into the loop. So they did that. And, um, they've seen like a 59% reduction in natural gas in October and November. And it went so well that Jay Sean was the engineer that did that. And he actually received your Envisioner of the year award in 2021 for that. I love that project because it just highlights to your question, right? Of new construction retrofit. And it didn't eliminate natural gas on that site, but it had a big step in decarb and, We all, I think, would agree that this is a journey we're all on to go down the decarb path. And it's not no carb out of the gate, right? It's trying to reduce that usage. And this is just a great example in an existing building where they were able to use some of these, I'll say, product solutions without having to redo the building totally, build it from the ground up or anything like that. So it's got applicability both, but definitely life cycle costing is a nice piece to consider because it's got such a low operating cost or the owner at the end of the day.
0: Mm -hmm. And then to make a uh, plug on the Danfoss behalf, we've actually just released a white paper about all that energy that today is just uh, given off as as waste heat and something that we uh, should really focus on capturing and reutilizing that uh, waste heat energy to do exactly the stuff that you guys did at the Towson Center.
1: Don't you love it when you when you drive by a, a facility like here in Indiana where it's you know cold outside and you see them putting all of that uh, waste heat up into the air, right? And you're just like, no, yep. somebody come grab it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Cooling towers running when it's thirty degrees <laughs> out, right? To keep the chiller going. So maybe we can even put a link in the show notes to the white paper that uh, that Dan Foss just published because it really is just so smart and really basic when you think about it to just reuse that heat somewhere else, right? Why? Why just dump it to the atmosphere? When looking at the units themselves, right? Our industry these days we've got a lot of moving parts, and and one of those moving parts um, is refrigerants. We see a lot of changes coming down the pike globally, right? It's not just a U.S. uh, phenomenon. So we see a refrigerant transition coming away from HFCs going to um, lower GWP refrigerants in 2024. How do you see that transition uh, impacting the geothermal heating market?
1: Yeah, it's tied to a second one, too, Vic. You know, you've got that, and we're going to talk, I think, later about the Inflation Reduction Act, And there is a lot of connection there. The connection of both of those, though, to your question, I would classify as we see it as very sunny days ahead (laughs) for geothermal systems. You know, we like the sun. It uh, heats up the earth and we love that. So it is a positive influence on the overall adoption. Now let's talk about specifically the phase down that you mentioned. So water-based heat pumps, as we described earlier, they have a very low factory sealed and tested charge in them. So the charge amount to begin with of the refrigerant that's used today is low to begin with. But then inside the building, we're using water to transfer the energy. That's the medium that we're using between zones that need cooling, maybe on a fall day, that's got solar gain here on like my window to my left, out on the perimeter, but inside, you know, they're needing heat. So we don't have long line sets of refrigerant, even like you might have in your own home, right? If you've got an outdoor split system, So we don't have any of those with our units to an outdoor condenser or manifolded in the building. And that's a big benefit for water-sourced equipment when you talk about the refrigerant change and the use of what will be then uh, in the very near future here, the A2L refrigerants. So in general, it's always good to use less refrigerant. And we really are seeing MEPs and architects that are adopting that approach of how do I build and design a building with the lowest refrigerant footprint possible. And uh, these products have have always been that, being being packaged and self-contained like that. They've been a great solution. This is kind of bringing a little more visibility to that benefit that's always been there. And and that's a positive thing for us and for our industry.
0: Yeah, so the refrigerants are one battle at you as the manufacturer will have to tackle. I think the other that's coming up uh, in 2023, and that's the increased uh, federal efficiency standards on heat pumps. So are geothermal heat pumps rated the same way as the the traditional airside heat pumps, or do you have different ratings and, and how has uh, those uh, increases in the efficiency requirements impacted the designs?
1: Yeah, so the good news for me personally is, you know, as you get more years under your belt, Vic, you've now seen a few of these. <laughs> you've yeah. gone through this cycle a couple times, right? Yeah. And uh, water furnace has, yeah, prior to my time here has obviously gone through this. And their approach, and it'll be the same in this instance that's going on now, as you reference, is we're going to always try to be on that upper end of performance when it comes to just the base efficiency. We want to just exemplify the fact that we're a reliable, renewable energy kind of company. And in general, the improvements to these efficiency minims are a positive, right? It's kind of high tide, uh, in our view, rises all boats. And so some of the details seem sometimes, maybe, though, to your question, they're not always congruent with maybe the way traditional air source units are measured and the standards aren't identical. So then there is some discrepancies. But in general, I mean, our industry, we got a lot of really smart engineers across many companies and they're heavily engaged, right? The Department of Energy, HRI, ASHRAE. All of those industry bodies are working together with manufacturers like ourselves to make sure that the details of the standard that you're talking about, therein lies the challenge is the details of the test conditions and all that, that you have to make sure that are similar to create some even playing ground. So our products are currently and always have been on the water source heat pump side, HRI certified. So we use the 13256 standard for those. Our water-cooled chillers, they're also HRI-certified under the 550 standard. So from a customer-contractor perspective there, what they need to be aware of is just to make sure you're buying from companies that have that HRI affiliation. And remember that in our case, they're all 100% electric. And when we're talking about energy efficiency and reducing CO2, these products have no CO2 emissions, which is a positive in some of the goals that both governments and companies are trying to meet moving forward. So there's challenges uh, always with an efficiency standard increase, but I would just say that it's not something we haven't navigated before. And a lot of really smart industry advocates are all working together to ensure that it gets what's intended, which is back to improve the overall efficiency at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you also mentioned uh, it was important that This time, it seems industry and uh, the governments were working a lot better and a lot closer together. For those of us uh, old enough to remember, the our 22 to 410A changes, the 10 to 13 SEER changes on the residential side, it was, I don't want to call it adversarial, right? But there were certainly um, more tension, let's say, in, in those discussions, whereas now it really does seem public and private sector are really kind of on the same page, pushing forward working together understanding each other so as we increase the efficiency standards uh you know it's being done well and reasonably and and timing and all that stuff so it feels at least moving a a lot better in that direction uh part of that move of course then is what we uh, really came here to talk about and that's the inflation reduction act the ra act it's a historic investment in energy efficient technologies, and maybe can you give a quick summary to the listeners for what some of those key provision and incentives are around HVAC systems and geothermal?
1: So now we're finally to the fun stuff, Vic. <laughs> yeah, right. we are. So maybe just uh, there is a lot here. So there's another podcast. So we, maybe we we put on the books for later on. Yeah. But mm-hmm. let me kind of give you the listeners think about maybe four pieces. So first is we've had a 10% tax credit for commercial geothermal that was fairly underutilized. It just wasn't enough to move the needle. So that 10% is now 30%. So that's kind of a big element. Plus, if you purchase from a domestic provider, you can add an additional 10 points or 10% that gets you to 40% credit on that entire geothermal system. So the loop in the ground, the piping, the equipment, right down to the diffusers blowing into the space. And I'll just remind everyone that I'm here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and our engineering, design, development, testing, and every single unit that is in our product offering is built right here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So qualify for that domestic element. So that's the first element. We can really get into more on that at another time. So the second item is very new, and that is that you no longer need to have a tax liability. So in other words, in the past, it was for in essence for profit companies. So now state, local, not-for-profit companies are eligible for this same tax credit that I just uh, mentioned as item one. And in their case, it will be a direct payment from the U.S. government because they're not sending a check uh, for their taxes. So that's the second piece. The third piece is EPAC-179D is a tax deduction, not a credit, but a tax deduction that's also been around for quite some time that's been in play. And now it's still there to provide uh, tax benefits. It's always been around trying to incentivize the building designer and or owner to design buildings at output form the ASHRAE 90.1 standard. And in the past, it's been $1.82 a square foot if you exceeded that standard by a certain amount. Well, as part of the IRA, that now increased to a max of $5 a square foot. So it's not just, this one is not specific to geothermal heat pumps. However, geothermal heat pumps do qualify for that maximum $5 a square foot benefit. So that's 3. The fourth item then to just keep in mind relevant to the IRA is that these units are qualified or classified rather in the tax code as energy property. So as a result, they also qualify for accelerated depreciation instead of a 39-year schedule that, you know, any of the accounting geeks out there are familiar with. Now you can do that on either an accelerated depreciation that has a bonus plan in the very first year or over a five year accelerated cycle. And that has some uh, very nice financial benefits to it. So as far as kind of, as you think of those four elements and how they're kind of geared up, they're definitely started the the history of some of the geothermal tax credits were towards for-profit companies, but that's obviously changed in some of the recent work here that has happened with the IRA and there's really a couple nonprofits. Uh, let's say in the case of a school, but there's a couple people that benefit in the case of a nonprofit. Just to uh, for folks to think about, the school district itself would get that 40% that I talked about. You know, that first item, the 30 and the 10. But then, because they're not paying taxes, the MEP or the architect qualifies for that 179D, that $5 a square foot. Because they have a tax liability and they can apply then that deduction of $5 a square foot to their tax liability. So they both can benefit and it's encouraging, right, the designer, regardless if they're designing for a for-profit company or for a not-for-profit or a school. The, The other aspect that, you know, is still developing on this whole thing, Vic, is that there's some aspects in the IRA that we think will be beneficial for utilities to also be a part of the geothermal industry. And some of those details are we're working out right now, we've got some of our team and and others in the industry working with the U.S. Treasury on some of the definitions, because some of that doesn't come out, right, when these (laughs) laws get passed. Um, So the positive, though, that we believe that will drive is that it'll allow utilities to play in the spaces of doing what we would call district loops. So think of, gas lines, right, that come to your house today. Well, instead of it being gas, it's just a water line and it's connected to a large geothermal field. So those we think will be beneficial a little longer term to our industry and they are outlined. Um, there's just not some of the definition is still being worked through the language, but those should have a very positive impact also from the IRA. We talk about some of the utility side too. So a lot to unpack. That was your Reader's Digest version for those people that are old enough to know what Reader's Digest is.
0: But it seems like the Inflation Reduction Act is really aiming at all the stakeholders. You mentioned the 30% or 40% credit that could go to the, the building owner, whether it's a, a school district or a private property. You've got the uh, reduction per square foot, which could go to the engineering firm working uh, towards the design. And then you've got some incentives for the utilities. And that's always I think really important right if you get an owner wanting to do something but the engineer and the contractor think it's a pain in the neck or don't want to do it or and all that stuff and they're not motivated to do it or the utility they want to keep selling you gas and not convert you over to a heat pump or whatever right then right you're breaking
1: the chain is all it takes right and it's done exactly
0: (laughs) it just takes one person to kind of poo-poo the whole project and suddenly just kind of give up and, and go back with what you had so i think that's really cool to note that Took into account all those different stakeholders to kind of drive all this uh, forward, whether it's geothermal specific, or as you said, there's some that are really just in general around uh, improving efficiency. But then, if we do talk to geothermal specifically, how do you see the geothermal market coming out from the Inflation Reduction Act, from the AIM Act? I mean, do you see this as a, a boost, relatively speaking? To geothermal, are these acts really pushing uh, more geothermal more than or, or ahead of some of the older existing technologies? Uh, you know, Do you see this as a, a good opportunity for, for, let's say, building owners or, or, or other stakeholders to take that next look at geothermal? Maybe they looked at it some years ago, decided no, for whatever reasons, and now's the time to kind of really reevaluate that.
1: Yeah, it's really important, I think, kind of think of that question to walk through the financials using all the benefits of the, the items that I talked about throughout this podcast that are now available. Cause if you do that, you'd be hard pressed not to convince yourself that it's a very positive impact and um, both financially and clearly right. Doing the right thing for the planet, which hopefully we're all trying to, to do every day. That's, I would say our focus when we think about uh, that question, we're working every day to support our customers with products and the services that align to their expectations it's not so much well it's got to be geothermal or what is the differences in a traditional system versus geothermal it's it's kind of like well let's talk about the financial case the life cycle cost let's talk about the positive impact that this system can make for you for your company on some of your goals that uh, hopefully you're setting. And so that's what we're trying to do uh, when it comes to, to trying to solve that question of how this affects them.
0: So if you're a stakeholder, and whether that's an engineering firm, a building owner, a contractor, what can they do to make sure they're taking full advantage of these opportunities that are out there, right? They're not going to be here forever, so who can they reach out to to make sure that they're really getting every dollar that they can of these opportunities while they're available?
1: Yeah, the chain, as we talked earlier, right? Everybody's got to be in sync. And and we said the IRA is kind of touching on all of those. And I think the way that they take advantage is great because it's not automated, meaning just like people have to listen to this podcast to, to learn. I can't have a computer listen to it. And I learn from that. I have to listen to this. And I think that's the great part, Vic, to to answer your question, because our industry, we still transact with people, just like you and I are doing right now. It's people for people, right? Yeah. Do we have remote diagnostic things, chat tools? Of course, right? Those are, you have to, to, to survive. But what's an architect doing in terms of your question of how do we get this to people? An architect is listening to the building owner. And they're saying, okay, I'm going to design a space for you that's specific to your needs. And then what happens, right? An MEP takes that. He or she works then with an OEM to lay out the best mechanical system to meet what started that owner and architect. Well, what happens next now that they've got a mechanical system? Right now, a contractor gets involved. They're laying the pipe in the ground. They're wiring up the unit. They're programming it to operate what our building needs. And now when people, again, step into this building, it's got an indoor environment that's healthy, it's fresh. It wasn't a software program that did that. It was people listening, working together to design it, build it. And now what do I have? It's energy efficient, it's environmentally friendly, it's comfortable, and it's still cost-effective. Some of that as a result of the AIM Act and the IRA, clearly, right, from an incentive perspective, but how we bring these to people and deliver these results to your question, our biggest opportunity is just to not lose sight of what is that voice of customer? What are they needing? And then let the chain of people work together to deliver the benefits that these systems can provide. They're not the only solution, but they're one of the what we believe is the better solutions to provide all those benefits so that's how we bring this to bear to the market so to speak is good old people listening to what the needs are and then using some intellectual knowledge to apply these systems in a way that delivers these great buildings that we all that are in the working world live and work in every day.
0: mm-hmm Imagine that people doing business with people. Yeah, it's it's clever, isn't it? (laughs) Novel. (laughs) Absolutely. So, before I let you go, is there anything I forgot to ask you or that you want to mention before we end here today?
1: Again, just reiterate the appreciation that uh, we have of working with the team at Dan Foss and. Having the opportunity. I feel the topics that you have uh, had in there and your other forty some that are already posted out there are are a little daunting uh, to me, but I'm uh, privileged to have the opportunity and hopefully it's been enjoyable. And we probably can talk for another one on more of the details of the IRA as there's a lot there's a lot going on there, but it is, as you said, Vic, you know, I do think that they've got all the right pieces of the chain motivated to uh, make this a positive benefit for not just individuals, but also for the planet. And for that, we thank Dan Foss for the opportunity.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Paul. So that's it for this episode of Envisioneering Exchange. I'd like to thank my guest, uh, Paul Selking of Water Furnace for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share it with your network. Thanks for listening and talk to you next
2: time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisionary Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions, of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website website, computer, or playing device.